Welcome to The Savvy Founder, the one place for entrepreneurs and business owners, away from the everyday bustle, where we help you find your path to a profitable and bright future. Now here's your host, The Savvy Founder and armchair sociologist himself, Philip Topham. Hello and welcome to The Savvy Founder. I'm Philip Topham. And today I have a wonderful guest, Christian Peravelli. I hope I said that Peverelli. correctly. Peverelli. <laughs> oh man, God, the, the worst nightmare of the of the host is to mess up the guest's name. But that's where we're. I'm just, uh, you know, being honest. <laughs> I never. I was just knew you as Christian when we met at the yeah. at the um, the Orange County. I guess the first annual startup fest at the, the, the flight hangar or whatever it was that that's where we met for the first time so welcome christian How's thanks it? so much for having me and don't worry about the name i get all versions of pervarelli peverelli I, you know people <laughs> even the peverelli and then it's like you know like I, i've heard it all so don't worry about that <laughs> i'm really happy to be here yeah so so it, so far the you know i've been covering all sorts of different aspects of the startup community. I've had Angel on, I've had an accelerator, a new entrepreneur, a late entrepreneur. And the whole point of the show is to try to help shorten the journey for that first or second time. I'll say tech startup, but even in my world, I think every new business that's faced today is going to be a tech business because of all the the robotics, the drones, the AI, the CRM systems. If you're a traditional business, you're figuring out how to have to do that. And so even the traditional businesses, in my mind, when they start doing all this tech stuff, they start thinking that it's like a tech in Silicon Valley and, and get into this weird equity thing. So your background, um, you know, we can, we'll talk about the no code stuff that you're developing, but for the audience, why don't you give me a little bit, give them a little taste of your background, where you're coming from, and then segue into the, the no code. So, yeah, sure. Um, so basically, so my name is Christian Peverelli and, and I essentially uh, started building startups right out of university. Um, I essentially had my first uh, job, um, and I started my first startup at the same time. Uh, in retrospect, not the best idea, <laughs> but uh, I ended up quitting that job to take that startup full time. Um, I sold that startup in the end of the day and built a couple more startups. I've raised capital for some of the companies that I've built. I have also chosen to bootstrap other companies. Um, so I really have the perspective of a entrepreneur as the founder. Um, but about Five years ago, I took over, I was the director of a startup program called uh, Startup Boost Pre-Accelerator. Uh, we trained over 100 startups who went on to raise more than $40 million, get into Y Combinator, Techstars, 500 startups, and all those. And throughout that process, I, it, it became incredibly obvious to me that there was a big flaw in the system and in the way that, you know, that startup entrepreneurship was taking place. I also share your, your sort of belief that all startups are tech startups and that all innovation is actually driven by technology to a certain extent, whether we're talking about entrepreneurship, intrapreneurship, uh, or a combination of both. And so 
essentially the, the pivotal point happened for me when I was looking at about 400 um, startups come through and I had to select eight who we trained for six weeks, put on stage at Google at the end of those six weeks, and they'd pitch in front of about 100 to 150 investors. And at that point, I just realized, oh my God, the number of founders who have spent a lot of money and a lot of time, usually, you know, 20, 30, thousand dollars to several hundred thousand dollars and usually between a year and two years of their life building the startup had very little um, progress or traction to show for it and that's the point at which i realized that everyone in the ecosystem was playing the same game selecting the best startups who had already kind of right. figured it out through trial and error and i realized that essentially if we wanted to cultivate a healthier um you know entrepreneurship ecosystem we had to really get our hands dirty and help people who were up and coming, aspiring entrepreneurs, first time entrepreneurs. And more specifically with what we do is this idea of empowering non-technical founders. So oftentimes, and I've always been a non-technical founder um, and have had to sort of manage technical teams. Um, but essentially over time, I realized that everyone who was non-technical was going to have to kind of learn how to either manage a team or get things off the ground themselves. And uh, unfortunately, the route I saw most people choosing was to try to raise capital. Yeah. And we both know that raising capital yeah. without three to six months traction is complicated. Yeah, so, so we'll come back. We'll leave that right at raising the capital. But there's a couple of things that you said that I want to uh, delve into, you know, and make sure that I get that. One of the thing you said is you started as an entrepreneur right out of school. Like, were you born an entrepreneur? Like, were your parents an entrepreneurs and you just had it in your DNA or, or did you like, oh my God, what, I can't, you know, I, I failed at interviewing and now I got to do my own thing. What, what, what was the story there? I actually, funny story. I went to like the top university uh, for hotel management in Switzerland like the number one school it's called ehl it's in lausanne switzerland uh -huh. and i graduated from there with a direct path to becoming an executive in the hotel business okay but and my parents have never been entrepreneurs um actually my mother did have some entrepreneurial experiences starting sort of montessori schools um but i was definitely encouraged by the drive that my parents had and their their ambition um, I would say that it was it was a healthy level of ambition where it was, you know, they were still around to really be present as parents, which is super important, I believe. But no, I'm a huge believer that uh, entrepreneurship is a learned skill. Um, yes, some people have more uh, predisposition to essentially take risk, which mm -hmm. can be a trait that's useful in entrepreneurship. Um, but yeah, I believe that all entrepreneurs, there's no good and bad entrepreneurs. There's just trained entrepreneurs and untrained entrepreneurs in my mind. When Got I started it. off, even though I had like the extroverted DNA, which helped me, um, I hit a lot of the same roadblocks as a lot of people who start off. And so I always joke with my co-founder where it's like, you know, we essentially built the, the um, education system that we wanted, um, that we wish had existed. Wish, wished you would yeah. have had, right? <laughs> 15, 17 years ago when we started our, our entrepreneurship journey. Yeah. Touching on that point about the, the risk profile like so there's a lot of skills that i completely agree with you that are learned skills uh, but the the risk profile seems to be sort of an innate thing right so how does one deal with that 
risk difference, that risk tolerance is that? First of all, that's a luxury, right? Like okay. if you're if you're in a family that's living uh, like an, in, in an underserved community and, you know, you've gotten, uh, you know, a, the bad end of the stick, like you're going to have to work harder. That's just something that I think everyone at this point really knows. Um, but for me, I guess I see I always look at things more from an existential point of view where it's like, um what do I care about? You know, once you have the luxury of being able to choose what it is that you want to do, I think that it kind of becomes a responsibility um, to go after things that you feel are going to be worthwhile in your lifetime. So for me, it's as simple as like, you know, if, you know, when we're all lying on our deathbed, like, you know, what is the thing that you're going to regret the most? And for me, I think one of the big things was like not having an impact um, and also um, always working for somebody else. So I very yeah. early on wanted to make big things happen um, because I think I had been, you know, raised to believe anything is possible, which is kind of funny with my generation because we also basically the, um, uh, you know, the huge financial crash happened when we finished university, 2007, 2008. Right. And so, <laughs> and so it was kind of like this uh, raised on Disney movies, like believe everything is possible. You can do anything by boomers who had, um, you know, obviously massive potential in the, the industrial revolution and, and past that. And, and then kind of being brought up as like this, believe you can do anything yeah. and then get, you know, so it, it's a big, it's an interesting topic, actually. Yeah, we could, you, you, have, a yeah, other, we could have a whole thing. You know, for, I, you just, just to put it in perspective, you know, I was certainly raised in a um, you can be anything family, you know, if, a, a immigrant family. So despite what, you know, I was born in Europe as well, born in England, parents emigrated with three. So uh, not a lot of money, poor. Uh, it, and so, but I was still taught if I went to college, I could be anything I wanted to be. But you, you notice that if I went and got the education and then did the work if, and worked yeah. for somebody else. So I was instilled with this entrepreneur, but it never fit with me. You know, I kept, I, I never quite understood why, you know, five years at a company was a lifetime. Um, and that's a little bit outside of that. But back to your original point, that those that are, that I call the personal feasibility space, those that are, disadvantaged you know there's no risk that the risk is not there because the risk is not having food or shelter on the table they'll, they'll do anything right so they'll just move forward but the privileged of the world um have something to lose so they can have this concept of risk right versus this concept of purpose and focus right and that's i think you're tapping into that you had this belief that you could be way more than what you were this purpose and focus and impacting the world and that is, is that what I'm hearing? That's what drove you to the entrepreneurship? That's really interesting because I also fundamentally believe that this idea that uh, like the question we all get growing up, what are you going to become when you grow up kind of has the undertone saying you're not good enough now. You're not worthy now. And I think that's something I totally discourage in terms of like mindset. But I think that what like for me, what really got me going was this idea of like, what el what do I actually want to do with my life? Uh -huh. Like, and, and I think, again, I bring it back to the existential part, because I think that if you're in a situation where you don't necessarily have to worry about uh, being able to eat every day, uh, for example, or shelter over your head. And so, you know, that can even exist in 
underprivileged communities, whereas a, you know, 18 to 25 year old, if you're still living at home and someone else is covering your expenses, you still have very little risk. You can still sure. use that energy and time. Um, and, and I think that, you know, for me, I didn't have the issue of, 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 of like poverty basically. And so what that drove me was to be like, okay, if my parents worked so hard to get us from, because my, my father, you know, grew up in Switzerland. He's the, the, the son of a bricklayer and a factory worker. Mm -hmm. And he worked from the ground up to, to build what he had. Um, and, and he instilled in us this, um, this idea that if you work hard and if you're consistent and if you show up, um, you can take control of your, your own destiny. Uh, and so for me, it was kind of a responsibility to, to be like, okay, if someone has dedicated their life to just supporting me, like I, I can now, I have the luxury to be able to take it from the place I am and go from there. And so right. some of the, the, the great things that I think happened when I was growing up was basically just great family values. And then also, um, I've also always passed the marshmallow test. You know that like you can have one marshmallow now or you can have like two marshmallows if you wait a couple of days. Uh -huh. I've always kind of had that attitude of like um, investing in the process and then and then being really patient with the with what came back to me. So I, I definitely spent years as an entrepreneur pretty broke and and sacrificing like a lot so that sounds like an advice you, you would you would ask. Uh, maybe that's a new test for investing uh, time and energy in any startup, right? You ask the founder, you know, do you want one marshmallow today or two tomorrow? And and depending <laughs> on how the answer, you you decide whether or not you you do the sweat equity and help them or invest. That's an interesting idea. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I like that. I mean, this is a test that's actually been uh, done over and over and where they tracked like children with sure, the, yeah, these marshmallow yeah. tests. And yeah. Um, oh. But yeah, I mean, back to it, I think that there's a lot that's being left on the table. I think that now is actually, there's this massive movement that's happening that is empowering this next generation um, and opening up entrepreneurship to people who are non-technical, people who don't have very much money, um, people who don't have very much experience. Right. Um, and, and so I think it's the best time ever to be a solo non-technical founder um, right now, actually. Like, yeah. You yeah. Know. So let's, let's, let's dive into that. You know, so there's, you've, you've, we've talked about it, you know, this idea that there's still this Silicon Valley echo, the Silicon Valley myth and, you know, the fundraising that from the, 2000s, the dot com, dot bomb era, you know, there's still this like, belief that you kind of can have a conversation over a cup of coffee, you know, scratch out an idea and on the back of the napkin walk away with this huge check. And do, do you believe that 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 myth still exists or has it been put to bed? You know, is it is it still there? Do you still see companies coming to you expecting that that's what's going to happen? Um. I actually probably a good example of that because when I started off my journey, I raised capital for my first startup um, with just a pitch deck and a great idea and a good team. Um, but essentially over the past 20 years, the uh, ecosystem has evolved, right? So, you know, we went from being able to raise capital with a pitch deck to needing uh, to have a proper team to needing to have a product. And now we're at the stage where you need three to six months of revenue uh, and or traction. So monthly active users coming back and using your, uh, but what that, what happens there is that 
it, it basically implies that um, you need to have uh, to, to have what it takes to be able to not only conceptualize, validate, build, but also then monetize and be able to do that for several months before you can get the support of people um, who are willing to invest. So, you know, it doesn't mean you can't raise funding, but yes, like 99% of the time you will not be able to raise capital unless you have three to six months traction. So that's one of the realities we just have to talk more about. Um, I actually think this happened uh, over the past 10 years where it was like, you know, we Instagram was probably one of the worst examples because it not only came across as, oh, these guys, you know, like they built this company with only 10 people, sold it for a billion dollars within only like two or three years, but also they generated zero dollars in revenue in doing so. Like that doesn't happen anymore. Yeah, I remember that. And I it still reminded me of when I sat in the conference listening to an economist talk about how they valued the dot-com companies and they measured the value of a company by the number of eyeballs. And they would say, well, that has an audience of this. Each eyeball is worth X. And, and, I, and I remember thinking Instagram came out and they got this huge amount of money to go, we're still measuring eyeballs? It, the world hasn't changed in, in <laughs> 12 years and we're still measuring eyeballs. It, it was just crazy to me, but yeah. So but the idea there, right. Was all yeah. about eyeballs, which, which relates directly to ad money, right? The idea was yeah. like, if you have enough eyeballs, you can monetize through ads. Yeah. However, if today you go up to an investor <laughs> and you say that, then the interesting thing is that you're essentially going to realize that who are you competing against? If you are trying to monetize through ads, you're competing against Google ads, you're competing oh, yeah. <laughs> against Facebook ads, you're competing against YouTube ads, which is also, you know, YouTube, no, sorry, Google, but you're competing against massive players who have figured it out and have way more targeted oh, yeah. sort of uh, uh, ad platforms. And it's not, it's not as much of an option and the investment communities hundred percent understood yeah. that. And so they don't invest in that same way. Right. Um, at this point, if you want to raise capital and like a good example are, is a handful of, of people I know who raised capital. They were, uh, you know, some of the, the, the chiefs over at uh, SpaceX at the beginning of SpaceX. And of course, they were able to raise capital with just an idea and a nice piss check. But most of the time that doesn't happen. But more sure. importantly, people should not be banking on that right now. Like if you're banking on that, it's a losing game. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. So you you mentioned that you had your epiphany when you realized you only had to select eight companies and the 400 out of 400. And that meant 300, my math's right, 392 people wasted a lot of money, a lot of time and were, you know, told you're not good enough. And so you've, you've gone on this journey and, and now offering some no code. And so we are no code. And yeah. so why don't you explain for people what, no code really is in case somebody's not heard of it. Yeah. And then so, explain what you do. Yeah, absolutely. So no code is, is really a movement um, that happened um, around a set of tools, a set of platforms that allowed you to build software uh, and automate systems without having to learn how to code and without having to learn how to understand coding language itself. So when we talk about building software, there's still code behind everything. You're just not necessarily 
coding the individual lines of code. So a lot of people think of it like Wix, Squarespace, and Shopify. Those were some of like the early kind of no-code tools. There's traces of no-code uh, back and low-code for you know probably uh, three decades before that. But right. the the it really no-code platforms started with those. And those were very templatized. They only allowed you to build a limited number of use cases. So storefronts and, and landing pages or websites. Now there's this whole new suite of tools that allow you to build full-on web apps, uh, mobile apps, progressive web apps, platforms. Yeah, just, just to I be mean, clear, just so to be clear for the audience, you know, it's when you say no code and you don't have to write any code, it's, I, I don't have to write if this, then that, or, you know, begin or start or declare a class or any of these weird language things. I, I don't have to select a, you know, C sharp. I can just use a drag and drop tool, right. A, a, with a graphical exactly. interface, right? Yeah. So it's a, a, a graphical it, it, user interface. So it's a visual programming is right. also the no, known name of no code. Um, and, um, and essentially, yeah, it allows you to uh, create the logic that you're talking about. If this, then that, uh, in plain English. Mm -hmm. So the, uh, the the flows that you have your users go through are defined in plain English. Um, and then also the way that you're building the uh, software is without learning how to code. So that's what it is. So why is it so hot and so great for a startup? Like we've, we've yeah. explained what it is. Why, why I'm a new entrepreneur. So why would I want to use this stuff other than it sounds like I don't have to hire a programmer, right? Yeah, so that's actually a very big point. Not having to hire a programmer means that you can save probably between thirty and fifty thousand dollars on building that MVP. But um, more importantly, yeah, this is opening up the door. This is breaking the code barrier essentially of entering tech in a generation where every single startup or entrepreneurship opportunity requires some level of tech. Yeah. So if every business opportunity requires tech, there are no more non-technical founders. You're just either you know how to build a certain level of tech yourself, or you are just trying to pay people to build a startup for you. Um, and, and so that's maybe a little extreme, but I always just encourage people to, you don't need to become a whiz at technology to build your startup and, and, and more specifically to, to launch it in the market, test the market, understand what the market wants and build a business. So it's essentially empowering this whole new generation of business um, entrepreneurs, you know, to, to build businesses that are going to define the next generation of not only startups, tech startups, but basically every single SMB. Um, and it's incredible. This technology is evolving more and more. So before, you know, it was just about creating like platforms like Airbnb at the beginning. And now you can build AI uh, algorithms. You can build uh, all types of things leveraging these tools. So, yeah. Um, so we'll, yeah. we'll get into the examples in a second. But so essentially, with using no code, not being able to drag and drop and build an application yourself without a programmer, it also means you don't have to go beg for money from a venture capital to get something done, right? That's and that's really where you yeah. started on this path, right? And I think when we before we were starting the show itself, we were talking and you said, that's, you wish you had built, you were building software that you wish you had had when you first started, right? So help us understand well, what yeah. that means. Actually, 
we so we are no code is the name of my company uh we're the leading institute for non-technical founders and we have a program that's called the no code startup so it's the mix between an accelerator program where you learn the methodologies on how to uh, actionable insight on how to actually build uh, sorry, to launch a company and monetize a company and, and build startups. And we combined it with a no-code product school where we select um, sort of a curated list of powerful no-code tools and teach you how to use them and accompany you through the process as you're building your MVP and launching it in the market. So it's essentially a, um, an academy where we provide people with everything that they need to get started and to really upskill and become founders of the future. So people who are self-reliant, people who are able to very quickly go from, I have this idea to I'm testing the market with it. I'm under, you know, and build those ideas into businesses. Some of them will work. Um, some of them will not work. Uh, that's also the nature of entrepreneurship. There is a high failure rate, but the way that I see things is that if we can reduce the time and money spent to a couple thousand dollars and, uh, and a couple of months, instead of spending, you know, $50,000 and two years of your life, then that is, you know, very powerful. And yeah, so our oh, yeah, mission yeah. is to, our mission is really to empower the next generation of founders, starting with non-technical founders. When you just said that, it, it triggered a thought, right? It, investors, the reason investors invest in 10 companies is because they, they, they diversify their risk, right? They're, they're, they're expecting one to be a superstar, you know, and make all the profits for all the others that don't make anything or lose money, right? What you just said is I could spend the same 50 grand in two years, or I could spend 50 grand, you know, every two months I could have a new iteration. So in the same two years, I could do everything and reduce my risk just like an investor. You know, so yeah. if you, right. Absolutely. And, and, and if you are a founder or if you're an aspiring founder, you are the investor. Yeah. You're investing yeah. time and money into your company. So we just created a process and, and uh, a system where essentially people can reduce the risk of their startup for themselves as founders, because right. essentially they, they're investing their time and money and you need to make sure that you are building the fundament in the right way and testing whether or not there's an opportunity. So you can either shift your focus or, uh, you know, successfully transition into entrepreneurship. Yeah, that, that's really powerful because if they are able to invest in themselves and keep more of the reward, then that's that's really how it should be. That risk, you know, risk reward ratio, which is which is investment, right? Yeah. Um, so that's wonderful. I mean, VC investment, venture capital investment, is the most expensive type of capital that you can take in as a company. So for, I think it all starts with education to kind of explain to people that um, the rate of return that is required for VC firms to turn over their fund because they need to please their investors yeah. is, is very high. And so when they're investing in you as a company, um, they're taking a, a risk, right? But you know there are many mechanisms that come with that investment, like liquidation preferences or all types of other things where um, I've seen many founders build uh, very successful companies and essentially only get pennies on the dollar at the exit. I, well, I can, I can uh, sort of attest to that. I now, through some weird mechanisms, I can actually say uh, I was one of the founders or chief technology officer for a startup. Uh, it, it just had an eight-figure exit 
I participated in that. I have a, now a small five-figure check, right? But that's that's from a gazillion years ago. And if I compare what my lost salary opportunity was to be in a startup versus what I ended up, oh yeah, I, I completely lost money. <laughs> so, but 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 it sounds very impressive to say I have an eight-figure. I participated. I was a founder and participated in eight-figure exit. So that's wonderful. So. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so in, in your running, so I, I, I forgot, I hadn't realized you were doing it more as an accelerator with the no code. So it's a, it's a two month program that you have for people. And no, it's, it's actually a, uh, we do annual membership. Okay. And so um, essentially when you join us, because we're also not of the belief that uh, a short six-week or eight-week or 10-week accelerator program, um, you can't actually build a business from the ground up in that amount of time. Building businesses takes longer. That's just the truth that anyone with experience understands. So we didn't also want to lock people into an experience where they felt like in, you know, in two months, if I haven't built my startup, like, you know, I'm doomed. I, I think that we take... We understand that people are, uh, who are starting businesses oftentimes have to do it on the side of their main job. Sometimes they have a yeah. full-time job. And so we've essentially adapted the way that we sort of teach people um, to be really well-suited for people who have full-time jobs and also people who are full-time entrepreneurs. Uh, and the reason for that is because we just needed people to have that support over a longer period of time because that's really what it takes to build a startup. So, you know... Probably not the smartest business decision, but in the end of the day, we're really focused on developing this uh, new breed of entrepreneur uh, of basically like someone who is just self-reliant and able to uh, go from idea to business way quicker. And if a business idea doesn't work out, great, move on to the next yeah. thing or, you know. That, that, that is awesome. In fact, that's, that's perfect because that's, that's really what the Savvy Founder is all about is, is sharing insights to shorten the journey for all the other entrepreneurs out there. So if, if you know, uh, kudos to you helping shorten the journey for a lot of other people. Uh, appreciate it. Absolutely. So, um, one of the things that I'd like to ask you is, you know, I, on the show is, is a couple of things. I like when you think back where you're at now, we can't, you know, what would you, what advice would you have given your younger self to have shortened your journey? Now, when you started on your journey, no code didn't exist. So you can't say, oh, I wish, you know, I wish I would have invented no code back then because it just didn't really exist to the robustness <laughs> that it does today. So I'm not going to let you do that. But is there anything that you would have wished you would have known that would have shortened your journey? Oh, a thousand things. I mean, you know, when, <laughs> you know, I, I can, it's, it's easy. Like basically the way I see it is that like every time that you have put in, you know, you, you have some success and then you're seen as an overnight success. But I think that, you know, for me more specifically, I would have the advice of right now, focus on upskilling, like focus on becoming a better entrepreneur, learning as much as you can from people who have already paved the road before you. I would say, you know, Christian, this stuff is happening in Silicon Valley, move to Silicon Valley immediately, learn from the best. And, and then basically, um, you know, at that point, you can uh, start your business so that you don't make all the same mistakes as you made early on. And so the other thing would be, yeah, I mean, 
there is a method to this madness and you don't have to go ahead and you know these days what i see is a lot of people just like watching a bunch of youtube videos which can be you know have a lot of value but when it comes to it you're kind of still just trying to figure it out by checking out bits and pieces finding crumbs around the internet which are great value but um they they end up kind of freezing you in analysis paralysis so lead with action would be a really really big piece of advice because the way you learn how to be an entrepreneur is not necessarily by reading books you will learn some interesting insight but it's in taking the actions and learning from those actions essentially that teach you the best lessons in entrepreneurship so i would have basically said like take massive action don't overthink things uh set your hypotheses and then go out in the market and prove them right or wrong and move on to the next hypothesis after you've you've done that it's really a process of iteration and then the other thing i'd say is don't really like don't really build something fully out until you 100% understand the very small market that you should be focused on at first mm-hmm. um trying to be everything for everyone because you have this massive vision is not the right approach it can be a perfect endpoint once you figured right. out the uh the best customer to focus on first and to please first you can always um uh, you know increase your features to be able to include more uh people in that yeah um and in that way you grow the market out but yeah. as soon as you start going after a thing that's great for everyone you're building nothing for no one and i, I learned I, that the hard way not, building <laughs> that's a that's a great way to say, you know as soon as you're as soon as you're trying to please everybody you're building nothing for no one yeah i absolutely agree i it, i cannot tell you how many uh entrepreneurs you're bouncing off the walls with 10 ideas and you're going you know 10% of 10% of a of of all those ideas so let's say you have 10 ideas and you only get 10% of any one idea done that means you have zero revenue <laughs> it just it just exactly. it, it doesn't make sense so pick one get it to completion prove that it works it's the same thing with social media strategy right pick pick one audience pick one channel pick one message prove it works then go on to the next one prove that works and so on build out your strategy so you know if you hire an agency that ever says, oh, you got to be in 20 places all at the same time. Eh, make sure you know who the audience is first. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And it's, so, I mean, it's, it's the same thing with like building a product, right? I think something that non-technical founders specifically forget is, and, and I just talk about non-technical founders because that's the majority of aspiring entrepreneurs. They're non-technical. They don't know mm-hmm. how to code. In fact, only 0.3% of the world knows how to code. So very small population. That's less than 1%, a third of 1%. Wow. Uh, But yeah, um, no, I mean, you know, this is, this is something that is changing the game and it's, it's leveling the playing field for these people. But what they forget is that um, code or no code, or like most products that are built never make it because they have not, they're not really filling a proper market need. So Oftentimes people, and I see this all the time with non-technical people, they go from, I have this idea to, I don't know how to program to, I need to find or hire a programmer to build it for me. And that's absolutely not the right approach when it comes to building startups, because even if you are, let's say 80% right about what people wanted, which is very unlikely, um, you're still going to have to unbuild 20% and rebuild 
But more likely than not, what happens is people build products no one wants. 90% of apps in the app store uh, are zombie apps, so are never used. Um, so that's oh, yeah. an insane number. So, you know, code, no code, it doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, just realize that the product is not the, um, the solution to building a business. It's only 30% of it. And there's all these other things that you have to be able to do to, you know, build this hypothesis into a business. And so that's what I encourage a lot. It's about building meaningful products based on, on customers' actual needs and then build very simple products at first and slowly um, you know, develop that product into more complex features that are better at solving the problem you're going after. That's, uh, I can't agree with you more. That's, that's exactly right. So how does, uh, how does the audience get in touch with you? You know, if you've been listening, then you're you know, the whole, we've talked about the venture approach, the alternative to venture, not needing to raise money, not needing to get a CTO, figuring out your product market fit yourself through no code. And the you've got a great solution to help people out. How do they get in contact with you? Yeah, so they can, first off, they can check us out um, on, so at wearenocode.com. Um, they can also go and check out our YouTube channel. Um, you know, there we give out a lot of free advice essentially to, so that's, we are no code again. <laughs> we have a program called behind the movement where we actually interview a lot of, um, investors, no coders, founders, um, and we create original content, educational content for people to upskill for free. So that'd be a second place. And then on LinkedIn, I'm quite active on LinkedIn. If, if someone DMs me and as long as you're not sending me something that is clearly an automated message coming from a bot, <laughs> then I will, I will answer you. <laughs> yeah. And I'll have all that in the show notes. So it's, uh, it's been a pleasure getting a chance to sit down and chat with you. Uh, you've done a lot in the, I think a couple of years that we've known each other and it's, it's wonderful to see what you've been doing and uh, hopefully we can get a lot more entrepreneurs launched and started. So thank you very much. Well, thank you so much, Phil, for having me. And it's always a pleasure to spread the good word and to really, we're going to have to, you know, essentially encourage a healthier version of entrepreneurship because these, the, the narrative that's been going on for the past 30 years is not benefiting most aspiring entrepreneurs. In, a, in an age, in an era where everyone is starting, I've heard a, a stat lately, 40% of people in the workforce want out. And a lot of those people are looking towards entrepreneurship. So we're going to have to do something to accommodate. That's a, that, that's a discussion for another podcast. I could talk <laughs> about that all day. So with that, thank you very much. I'm Philip Topham, the Savvy Founder, wishing you a bright and profitable future in both your business and personal lives. Take care. See you next week. Be sure to leave a five-star review and check out all the other shows. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. Be sure to subscribe and check out our website for tips, thesavvyfounder.com. You can also follow Philip on Clubhouse at The Savvy Founder, wishing you a profitable and bright future. Safe journeys. See you next week.